0: We want to conclude the series that we started a couple of weeks ago on uh, living carefree in a troubled world. We've been using as a text scripture. First Peter chapter five, as well as some others, but uh, primarily this one. First Peter chapter five, we want to start in verse six. It says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. We, uh, we've we talked briefly about this, but I think it bears repetition. And that is the only way you can humble yourselves before God, which, by the way, let me uh, let me back up just a little bit. Notice it says that you're to do the humbling, not God. So many times in the church world, people have the idea that God humbles you. And usually when they say that, they're talking about uh, some tragedy or some problem or some sickness or some adversity that comes along they think that's god working to to keep their attitude right um the problem with that is it's unscriptural the bible says there's only one way that god corrects you there's only one way he instructs you there's only one way he humbles you and that is through his word amen so it's not through sickness it's not through disease it's not through adversity it's not through tragedy god doesn't use those things he's not the author of any of those things If God was trying to humble somebody through sickness, where would he get it? There's none in heaven. The Bible's real clear on that. The Bible's also real clear on Satan being the author of sickness and disease. So if God's going to humble one of his children through sickness and disease, that means he's going to have to make a deal with the devil to use something that's his. Now, I'm not real smart, but I am smart enough to know that the Bible tells us very specifically that God and the enemy, uh, God and the devil are enemies not partners. He's not making deals with the devil. That's just not the way it works, folks. Furthermore, since the Bible says that God is not the author of sickness and that there's no sickness in heaven, the the prayer that the church world points to as the Lord's prayer, the, the great model for prayer, Jesus instructed his disciples to pray that the will of God in heaven would be done here on the earth, which means an earth free from sickness and disease. Are you out there? So where it says, humble yourselves, therefore, before the mighty hand of God, notice it's not God doing the humbling, it's you doing the humbling. Humbling is an attitude. Humility is an attitude. He's saying, submit yourself. The whole context that he's talking about here is submitting yourselves to God. And in order to do that, you have to submit yourself to the word. You can't be submitted to God without being submitted to his word. For example, the idea that some people have that they love God and they just believe that there's a variety of ways toward God and and all this kind of stuff, that's not going to fly when they get to heaven. Because the Word says, it tells us that Jesus told us, that's the only way we have record of what Jesus said is through the Word. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So you can have any kind of idea about God you want to, but if you're not submitted to the Word in the way that it tells us to come to God, there's no coming to it. Amen. So humble yourselves, therefore, before the mighty hand of God means humble yourselves to the word. Accept what the word says to be true. Now, folks, there's a lot of ways we could look at that. That means accept what the word says about you to be true. Accept what the word says about Jesus to be true. Accept what the word says about sickness to be true. Accept what the word says about anything to be true. That's how you humble yourself before God. You bring yourself in line with what he says instead of what you think about it or what somebody else thinks about it, whether religious or otherwise. So where he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, he's talking about humbling yourself into the word. And notice what the result or the reward of that is. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Notice what putting the word first in your life does, what accepting what the word says to be true in every area of life Notice what it results in. It results in you being exalted. Now that's God's part. Your part is to bring yourself unto humility or to humble yourself. God's part is the exalting. And it all comes through the word. And what's one way that we're going to do that? Notice what Peter's inspired by the Holy Ghost to say. Here's a part of humbling yourselves, therefore, to the mighty hand of God. He said, casting all your care on him, for he careth for you. Casting all of your care upon him, for he careth for you. I like the Amplified on that, on verse 7. It says, casting the whole of your care, all your anxieties, all your worries, all your concerns, once and for all on him. For he cares for you affectionately and cares about you watchfully. Casting the whole of your cares, once and for all, on him. Now, folks, I'd like to be able to tell you that that's a once and for all thing for your life, but it's not. It's a once and for all thing for each area of your life. You can cast the whole of your care on Him for your physical well-being, for example, and still have to cast the care of Him, uh, to cast the care over on Him for your financial situation. Each individual situation you come upon, each problem, each adversity, each difficulty you come upon in life gives you an opportunity to worry. So you're going to have to cast those cares over on Him once and for all Each one at a time. Amen. Now notice he goes on in verse 8. He says, be sober and be vigilant. Well, now, wait a minute. If we're casting the care over on the Lord, what's there to be sober and vigilant about? Be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, walking about as a roaring lion. You know what something is like when it's as a roaring lion, don't you? Didn't say he is a roaring lion. It says he's as a roaring lion. Well, if he just said as a lion, we would think about the teeth. But he didn't, he says, as a roaring lion, which means a noisemaker. Here's what your enemy is like. He's like a noisemaker. He's like a roaring lion. He sounds bad, but there's no bite to him. As a roaring lion, your enemy walks about seeking whom he may devour. Notice the word may. It's not the word can, it's the word may. And if you look the word up in the Greek, it's talking about that which uh, gives permission. In other words, he's looking for somebody to give him permission to devour them. What does that tell us about the about the devil and about the way that he works? It tells us that the Bible is true when he said God gave man authority on the earth. Satan is the God of this world, but he can't take you over unless you give him permission to. Well, what are we to do? Verse 9, whom, speaking of the devil, resist steadfast in the faith. Knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. We all had the same problems. We all deal with the same stuff in life. Everybody has the same stuff to go through. So resist the devil. Yours is not some unique situation. How many of you have ever had the devil tell you, well, your situation's different? Well, of course, you'll hear a testimony of somebody overcoming the same thing that you're in. And the devil's right there to say, yeah, but it's different for you. No, it's not. It's not different for anybody. The devil's only got certain things that he can bring against us, and it's all designed to get us focused on our problems so that we give him permission to devour us. That's how it works. Now, notice he said, casting the whole of your care over on him. We've talked about that a little bit. But notice again, verse 8, we made mention of this briefly. Notice it says, be sober and be vigilant. Be sober and be vigilant. What does it mean to be sober and to be vigilant? Well, to be vigilant means to be watchful. Keep your eyes open. Don't be taken unawares. But the word sober is interesting because every time the word sober is used in the King James New Testament in the Greek, it, or it, the, the King James English word sober comes from the Greek word that that the root word means not moved by emotion. Now, most of the time this word is used as talking about being sober minded. In other words, it's talking about your thought life. Not every case. Other times it's talking about being sober in your actions. But whether it's talking about your thoughts or whether it's talking about your actions, it all comes down to the same thing, and that is don't be moved by emotions. Don't let your thoughts be moved by your emotions. Don't let your actions be moved by your emotions. He didn't say cut your emotions off. You're going to have emotions. You're going to be affected by your emotions, but don't let them affect your thinking or your actions. Why? Why? That's what he's talking about, casting your care over on the Lord. How does the devil get you to worry? By affecting your emotions. Without emotions, there's no worry. If it's not something you have concern or care or fear, and worry is just fear, it's just a characteristic of fear. If there's nothing to be afraid of, then there's nothing to worry over. That's why he said in verse 7 that we're to cast our cares over on the Lord. Why? Because he cares for us. The Amplified amplifies that just as the title suggests. He cares for us affectionately and about us. No, he cares about us affectionately and for us watchfully. In other words, God's got it under control. No need for you to worry. He'll take care of it if we humble ourselves to the word. How do we know he's going to take care of us? The word tells us so. Yeah, but, but Pastor Mike, you just don't know what situation I'm in. Well, I may not know what your situation is, but I know the word says God will take care of it. If we'll put it over in his hands, he'll take care of it. Amen? So notice your thinking has a lot to do with casting your cares over on the Lord. We, uh, we titled this series Living Carefree in a Troubled World. If you're going to live carefree, you're going to have to think carefree. Turn with me over to Philippians chapter 4. Let's see what Paul had to say about it. Paul, in writing to the church, is inspired by the Holy Ghost. To talk to people about the same subject must be a universal problem. And notice what he said. Beginning in verse 6, he said, Be careful. For nothing. Now, the word careful means to be drawn in different directions. It means a distraction. It means to be anxious. It means to be disturbed. It means to be annoyed in spirit. So what he's saying is, don't be distracted. Don't be annoyed. Don't be anxious. One translation says, don't fret about anything. He's talking about worry, isn't he? Be careful for nothing. Don't worry about anything. Well, if we're not going to worry, what are we going to do? I mean, let's face it. If most Christians stopped worrying, that's going to free up a lot of time. So what are we supposed to do instead? But in everything, in everything, in a few things, no, in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Oh, how many of us want that? Dear Lord, that's the ticket. We want that one. But notice how that comes. It only comes through casting your cares over on the Lord, putting it in his his hands by submitting yourself to the word by prayer, through prayer, trusting him to do what his word says. Then it says the peace of God will keep your hearts and your minds when you, verse 8, think on the right things. See, if you want the benefits of verse 7, you have to take the action of verse 8. Finally, my brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are a good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think. Everybody say think. Think Think on these things. It's an amazing thing to me how many Christians think that their thought life has nothing to do with, with their condition or position with God. And, and and this is so common, prevalent in some circles. You hear these people that will stand up and everything's doing going fine, so they'll stand up and they'll talk about faith. Well, yes, bless God, we're believing the word, we're believing God, we're trusting God to see us through. And then some kind of trouble comes along, and they fall out quicker than grandpa's dentures. Now why? What changed? Folks, no trouble that you come up on today or tomorrow or any other day ever changes God's word. I can see it on people's face. They'll come up after church and they'll say, Oh, Pastor Mike, I need you to pray. And, and it's what you can tell. It's one of those things we got to pray and we got to pray now. Cause dear Lord, if we'd wait just a moment, who knows what'll come apart? What's the problem? Well, I just found out they're laying off on the job. Okay. Is there more to this? Well, I, I just want you to pray that I won't lose my job. Well, I can't pray that. Because I don't control whether you lose your job and neither does God. Your boss is in charge of that company. I can't pray that you won't lose your job. Oh, Pastor Mike, their face falls. It's like, oh, no, I'll be the first one gone. You can tell they've been thinking on this stuff. They've been meditating. By the way, do you realize that worry is meditation? If you want to know how to how to meditate, just worry the Bible. (laughs) Think on it. Talk about it. Stick with it. It's there all the time. Don't let it get away from you. That's what worry does, isn't it? It's concerning a situation or a problem or something that somebody's afraid is going to happen. And most of the things we worry about never happen anyway. It's just the work of the devil trying to keep us distracted, occupied, thinking on the wrong things. So if you want to know how to meditate, a real good definition of meditate is to worry the word. Most people don't like to think that's what they're doing. but That's exactly what it is. We choose to focus our attention on the word. So I'll ask people, say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've seen I've had some people want to tell them that they they just drop their head. They walk away dejected and I'll call them back and say, come back. I didn't say we weren't going to pray. We just got to pray scripturally. I said, let me ask you a question. What does the Bible say about God meeting your needs? Some are real quick to say, well, the Bible says God will supply all of my needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. I said, that's right. I said, is that true only if you keep this this job? Well, I don't know. I guess not. I said, the Bible's true whether you lose your job or not, isn't it? And if you lose this job, you can trust God to get you a better job, can't you? I've seen some people try to hold on in what they think is in faith to jobs that keep them back. We start talking to them like that. Now, now granted, I think that in situations where you're facing a job loss or layoffs or something like that, I think you should pray that, the, that, that, uh, God would open your boss's eyes to your value to the company. And hopefully if you've been operating as a Christian in that job, there is value. Some people to pray that, that'd get them in trouble. So there are things you can pray like that. But folks, you can't pray to control other people's actions. Boy, if that was in the Bible, dear Lord, I'd have it made. If I could make you do what you're supposed to do just by praying for you, you'd be better off and I'd be happier. Now folks, we make jokes about that, but John said, 3 John verse 4, John said, I have no greater joy than to know my children walk in the truth. So for a minister, for me personally, one of the greatest attacks on my joy is people doing their own thing. See, we usually think of casting our cares on the Lord, having to do with physical things and financial things and stuff like that. But I can look around the room and I can see people that are represented here, families that are represented here, that you've had teenagers that went their own way. That wasn't a fun time for you, was it? And it's a funny thing about teenagers, and this works not only naturally, but spiritually, spiritual teenagers, they think they know everything. And they're not shy about telling everybody what they know. Proverbs says that a wise man holds his tongue but a fool utters all of his mind. I'm convinced that if that was written today, it would say a wise man holds his tongue, but a fool posts everything he thinks on Facebook. (laughs) Well, that's what spiritual teenagers do. Just like natural teenagers. They've got it all figured out. They're going to go their own way. They're going to do their own thing. They've got it figured out. It's not like mom and dad say. It's the way that I understand. Well, where's their understanding come from? From all the other idiot teenagers out there that are doing wrong things. But somehow when they get together, that idiocy is multiplied. (laughs) But now they've got all the answers. And they're going to do their own things. That's a tough time in the home, isn't it? There's a lot of opportunities to not worry there. When you don't know where they are after dark, way after dark. When you don't know what they're doing, the worst thoughts imaginable come to you. It's a marvelous opportunity to worry. But what are you going to do? Cast your care over on the Lord. Keep your mind on the right things. Make yourself think things that are just and true and honest and lovely and of good report. Things that they're virtue and praise about. Now I see some of those families and their kids have turned around. Now their kids are serving God. And oh, it's a great time in the home now. Some of you may be in the teenage years, so to speak. Well, you've got a loved one that's in that bad place. Doing their own thing. That's why the Bible tells us what to do in those situations. That's why it gives us instruction. So Paul again said, be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious or fret about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall, 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 shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, if you want that, If that's your hope, if that's your goal, here's how you get it. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Now, folks, I would submit to you that the only thing that fits all of those characteristics is the Bible. There may be other things that will fit one or two of them, But the Bible is talking is what, uh, what, in my opinion, is the one thing to focus on that fits each one of these descriptions or each part of this description. In other words, you're going to have to focus on what the Bible says about your situation instead of what the distraction tries to get you to think. Now, what do you think? Do you think Paul knew what he was talking about? How is he going to convince them? This is a church that he's been to before, and he's writing a letter back some, a few years later anyway. We don't know exactly when, but a few years later. He's writing back to them, but how is he going to get them to believe what he's saying? What credibility does he have to be able to convince them that this is the way you handle things? Turn back with me to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, let's start reading in uh, verse 12. It's talking about where Paul was going. It says in verse 12, And from thence we came to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. And on the Sabbath we went out of the city by a riverside, where prayer was wont to be made. And we sat down and spoke unto the women which resorted there. And a woman, certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Now, what this means is these were people that were interested in God, but they didn't know Jesus, and they heard Paul speak about Jesus and got saved. There's no ra- uh, reference or evidence that there was any kind of church, any kind of colony of, uh, of Christians there before Paul got there. In fact, Paul said he went where the, tr- the, the gospel had never been preached before. So we have to assume that that's the case here in Philippi. Now, Philippi is the city to which the letter called the Philippians letter was written to. Everybody gets that, right? So this is what happens the first time Paul was in the city of Philippi. And when she was baptized in her household, verse 15, she besought us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. Another translation says fortune telling. So that's the kind of situation she's in. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. I don't know how many is, but it's more than a few. This did she many days, but Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, I commend thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. Now, I don't know why Paul didn't do this the first day. I have to assume that the Holy Ghost moved upon him after many days that this was taking place. Now the Holy Ghost prompts him to do it. Now, if that's the case, that means that in some situations, at least, you're going to need some kind of help from the Holy Ghost to cast the devil out of somebody. Now, it would be different if this person came to Paul and said, hey, I'm hearing you preach about Jesus and about being set free. Can you set me free? Sure. No problem. But for Paul to do this contrary to either her or her master's wishes seems to be an indication that it takes a move of the Holy Spirit. And winter masters, verse 19, and winter masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone. They're really concerned about this girl, aren't they? They caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city. No, they don't. They troubled you by getting your little fortune teller girl set free. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. I want you to notice, folks, how people turn the things of God into political issues. It's nothing new. And don't fool yourself and think that's not going to happen in the last days. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. Interesting that uh, that Paul, being a Roman, didn't have an answer, opportunity to answer for himself. I guess the legal system wasn't any better for them than it is for us. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. So they've been beaten. They've been thrown into the the darkest, dankest, rankest, dampest part of the dungeon. And they're in chains. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Now, folks, let's back up just a little bit. Would there be an opportunity for Paul and Silas to worry? Marvelous opportunity to worry. Would there be an opportunity for them to complain about the situation they're in? Marvelous opportunity. I don't know why God let this happen to me. I can just see Silas St. Paul, the only reason we're here is because you said this is where we're supposed to go. What is wrong with you? Wait a minute, I thought if you're being led by God, everything's going to work out right. Well, everything does work out right, but it doesn't mean it's going to it doesn't mean it's going to be smooth sailing in between. One of the interesting things is the Bible says that Jesus was led of the Spirit into the wilderness. Sometimes the Holy Ghost will lead you into a hard place. I think one of the, the um, greatest difficulties in charismatic circles is this idea, and I don't know where people got it. They didn't get it from me. But this idea that if you believe in God, everything's just going to work out right and everything's going to be smooth sailing and everything's, you're never going to have any problems. Just, just trusting God, just living by faith means there's never going to be a problem. Folks, living by faith will cause problems. Jesus said so. But he said, but be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. In other words, I've given you the the wherewithal, the equipment, supernatural equipment, to overcome anything and everything that comes against you. But he never said nothing would come against you. So how do Paul and Silas handle this problem that the people in Philippi know about because it's happening in their city? And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Now, let me remind you of Philippians 4, 6, where it says, Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. When Paul writes this some years later, these people know that he's lived it. That's his credibility to be believed. That's the credibility he has with these people to tell them, don't worry. Because in prison, Paul had not throwing up his hands saying, oh, Lord, what are we going to do? No, he throws up his hands and says, Lord, you sent us here. You didn't send us here to spend the time in jail. So we thank you for getting us out of here in Jesus' name. And then they sang praises. Praying wasn't enough. They sang praises. In other words, they added thanksgiving to it. Now, folks, if um if what the Bible calls singing praises and giving thanks and stuff like that is what the modern day church is uh, is operating in. Then I would submit to you that Paul and Silas would still be in jail. There'd be skeletons hanging on the walls. Because they didn't have a CD to pop in. They couldn't sign up on their their internet radio station and hear great praise music. Now, this is something that came from their heart. Now, I'm all for praise music. I'm all for good things. I'm all for things that, uh, uh, that are in line with the word, which some are, some aren't. But folks, when the Bible talks about singing praises unto God, it's talking about from you. It's not talking about you listening to somebody else do it. It's not talking about just laying back and saying, oh, isn't this wonderful to hear somebody else praise God? That's fine. I enjoy the presence of God that's brought about by other people singing just as much as the next guy. But you can't live on that. Because there's going to come a time when you're in prob- you're in the middle of a problem on your own. And there's no praise music to put in. What are you going to do then? If all you know about praising and worshiping God is listening to somebody else do it, you're going to be totally, woefully unprepared when your trouble comes. Now, I know I get criticized for saying things like that, but it's true. I'm not against anything or anybody, but I'm not for substituting something that won't get you over in, the, in a time of difficulty, in a time of trial, for the real thing. I've been in situations and services with Brother Hagin where the power of God would come in and the presence of God would come in. He used to describe it, the, the, the presence of God is, is so thick in here it's like you could cut out a chunk with a knife. I've been in those situations, and man, they're wonderful. But then, when trouble comes against me or the church or whatever, I can't find those situations. I can't go back to those and say, "Oh, I want a chunk." Now, I've got to create my own spirit of God, own the atmosphere, the own presence of God through worshiping and praising Him. That's what Paul's talking about in Ephesians or in the Philippians chapter four. He's saying, "Create your own situation, just like he created his." And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. They weren't quiet about it, were they? The prisoners heard them. And suddenly, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. You know, it's an interesting thing because so much of the time, um, and again, I'm not criticizing anybody. I, I'm all for anything that helps folks. That's great. But I don't want to live off somebody else's earthquake. If a worship service in somebody else's church or somebody else's situation or ministry or whatever, if that's what brings the presence of God, where the power of God is manifest, that's great. I'm glad to hear it. I want to know about the testimony. That's wonderful. To experience some of that from time to time is, is, is great. But I don't want to live off somebody else's presence of God. That's not good enough for me. Paul had his own earthquake. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened. And everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison awakening out of his sleep. And seeing the prison doors open. He drew out his sword. And would have killed himself. Supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice and saying, do thyself no harm for we are all here. Can I ask you a question, folks? Why have the other prisoners not run? Because they know that they know from the praying and the singing praises that happened at midnight, the only reason that their prison doors are open and the chains have fallen off their hands and their feet. They know these guys that were thrown in as malefactors, criminals, are running the show. So they hold steady. Let's see what happens next. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Notice what your earthquakes will do. Your earthquakes will affect other people. That's why I'm not willing to have somebody else's earthquake. I want my own. I'm not willing to live off somebody else's presence of God. I want my own. Now, the Bible tells you how to get that, and it's through the Word. But notice a lot of it has to do with your thought life. I wonder what Paul and Silas thought when they were thrown into prison, after they were beaten and thrown into prison, no opportunity to answer for themselves before the magistrate. wonder what they thought. Well, they had the opportunity to think a lot of things, didn't they? They had an opportunity to feel sorry for themselves, a great opportunity to feel sorry for themselves. But they rejected that. I would submit to you or suggest to you that you pass up those opportunities to feel sorry for yourself too. Because they don't help. They don't change your situation. They'll just hold you back. They had an opportunity to feel like God had abandoned them. But they rejected that opportunity. They had the opportunity to think that nobody cares about us. Here we are, poor old us out here doing the work of God, just simply doing what God sent us out here to do. And now nobody knows and nobody cares. But they rejected that opportunity too. What did they think? They thought, wait a minute, God sent us here. He didn't send us here to spend our time in jail. God's in charge here. Let's put the power of God to work. How did they do that? They prayed and sang praises unto God. Now, I would assume... From the results that the prayer to figure out what the prayer is about is very simple. God, get us out of here. They're praying the prayer of deliverance. Otherwise, there's no reason for the prisoners to stay there after the earthquake sets everybody free. By the way, I don't find too many times in in, uh, history that earthquakes break bonds and open prison doors instead of causing buildings to fall down. It seemed pretty apparent to the other guys that are in there what's going on. Because they're staying put. And I don't blame them. I'd want to find out what are these guys going to do next. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Now, folks, can I, um, can I draw your attention back to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 for just a few moments? I really didn't intend to make this part of this series, but I kind of opened a can here and realized that people didn't know what I was talking about. Two weeks ago, we were teaching on Count It All Joy. We were talking about the Thanksgiving part. We were talking about the, um, uh, the attitude that we should have when we get into trouble. James 1 verse 2 says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Temptations means test trials or afflictions. Trouble, in other words, adversity. He says count it all joy. That's the same thing that Paul's talking about, praying with thanksgiving. We should look at our situations and the trouble that the devil brings against us. We should look at those things as opportunities to prove the word of God and be thankful for those opportunities. Now, that takes an attitude adjustment. That's why the Bible says, count it all joy, because it's not. It's not joy when your kids are out running wild. It's not joy when the boss is delivering you a two-week notice. It's not joy when the doctor says, here's a problem in your body. These things are not joyful, but they're opportunities to prove the word of God true. Now, depending on where our thinking is, depending on where we have trained ourselves to think, we're either going to count this as, oh, no, here's a definite crisis, who knows how this is going to turn out, or it is, thank God, here's a chance for me to defeat the devil in this area of my life. Now, if you believe the word is true, if you've trained yourself to believe that the word is true and the word is greater than any other thing, it's easy, or I should say easier, I'm not sure if it ever really gets easy, but at least we know the process whereby we stop our thinking from going the wrong way. Oh, my God, what are we going to do to wait a minute? Here's an opportunity. Are you with me? And in so doing, I was talking about Paul counting it joy in the middle of his trouble. And so I talked about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Now, a lot of the church world seems to think that that was sickness. Paul said it was persecution. He said it was persecution in uh, a number of ways. The words that he used, the things that Jesus said to him, and so forth—all these things add up to being persecution, trouble stirred up by other people, and not physical sickness. So let me start here in the um, the seventh verse, Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse seven. Paul said, "Unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh." Now, the only time in the Bible that thorn in the flesh is used, it's used one time in the Old Testament. Uh, well, a variation of it is used twice. One, it says that the Israelites would be a thorn in the sides. I'm sorry, the Ishmaelites. Did I say that? Well, anyway, whatever. The sons of Ishmael, the Arabs, would be a thorn in the side of Israel. In another case, it says that the Ishmaelites, the, the Arabs, would be a thorn in their eyes, a thorn in the eyes of Israel. So when Paul uses this phrase, a thorn in the flesh, he's talking about something that he knows that Christians are going to relate to. They're going to relate to the common situation, the Arabs and the Jews having a problem even then. He knows that it's something that people would understand his uh, example, the illustration that he uses. And so he says there was something that was stirred up trouble as trouble against me, just like the Arabs have been stirring up trouble against the Jews forever. Since the time of Ishmael. So he says, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh. The only two times that the Bible uses this phrase is talking about people causing trouble for other people. To say that it means something else nowadays would be totally inconsistent with scriptural interpretation. So he says, there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan. It says it was a thorn in the flesh. You, the illustration used is people stirring up trouble against me. Paul, he says it was the messenger of Satan, so he says exactly where it came from. It's the devil stirring up trouble against me. To, for what purpose? To buffet me. The word buffet is a verb, and it means the ill treatment of others. In other words, he's saying there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, people stirring up trouble against me caused by the devil to cause ill treatment of me wherever I go. If you look at the book of Acts, that certainly bore out. There's only one city that Paul wasn't run out of. To buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. Now, wait a minute. We just started off this morning with one Peter chapter five and verse six, where it says, "Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time." That tells very, very clearly, very simply, who the exalter is. The exalter is God. Now, since Satan is the enemy of God, what does the devil want to keep from you in the area of exaltation? The devil doesn't want anybody that God exalts to be exalted. So that fits with what what Paul said here about this being a messenger of Satan. That would be the work of the devil to keep Paul from being exalted through the abundance of the revelations, which were given by God. The revelations exalted him. The devil's trying to stop that. Folks, you've got to have a a, a doctor of divinity not to understand this. It's that simple. For this thing, I besought the Lord thrice that it, Rotherhams and uh, the New English Bible both translate this word it as the personal pronoun he, which it is in the Greek. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that he might depart from me. Who is he? The messenger. The word messenger is also the word translated angel throughout the New Testament. The angel or the messenger of Satan. He seems to think it's a demonic work or demonic activity. Because those are the words that he uses. For this thing I besought the Lord three times, that he might depart from me. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, let me stop right there and make a just ask a simple question. Is this what Paul did in Acts chapter 16? They're in jail. It's midnight. The backs are bleeding. They've been thrust in the innermost prison. Their feet are fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Is this that prayer? How many of you think this was that prayer? No way. No way. Paul and Silas are in prison praying specifically. Their prayer is specifically related to deliverance because that's the result they get. Had to be. There's no way that Paul and Silas could have prayed in Acts chapter 16, Lord, get us out of here if it be your will. There's no way at midnight Paul and Silas could have prayed these three times. Lord, let this thing depart from me. It's too late for this thing to depart from them. They are in jail. Their backs are bleeding and their feet are fast in the socks. Their prayer in Acts chapter 16 was very simple and that was deliverance. You sent us here to preach the message of Jesus. We can't do that from in here. Get us out of here. Thank you. Suddenly there was an earthquake. Why then is Paul praying this at another time? This has to be at a later date. Acts chapter 16 was very early on in Paul's ministry. Very early on. This has to be at a later time. Why would Paul pray about this at a later time in this manner when he already has experience in being delivered from the power of the devil? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Is anybody out there? Are you following where I'm going with this? For this thing, I besought the Lord three times thrice that it, he, literally he, might depart from me. And he said, Jesus, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, we went over this a little bit last week, but uh, uh, but there were, well, I, I don't know any other way to say this. I was surprised that people didn't understand what the comment that I made about grace never being applied to the physical body. I was shocked. I thought everybody understood that. Thinking more about it, I don't know where people would get it. I mean, you've got to be a pretty serious student of the word to understand that because most churches aren't going to teach that. There, there's not a lot of sources for that. So I guess my assumption was, uh, uh, or surprise, I guess, was misplaced. And my, as well as my assumption that everybody would understand. So let me let me talk about this for a few more minutes. Let me cover this, and I'm sorry if it's, uh, well, I'll cover some of the same ground we did, but I'll also cover some other things as well. Let's back up a little bit to the, to the word grace or the topic of grace. You've heard me say that that grace can be defined in a number of ways. Probably the primary way that people are familiar with is uh, unmerited favor. I really don't like that definition. And the reason I don't like the definition is not that it's not true, it's not accurate, it is. But I don't like it But because of uh, there's been so little teaching on who we are in Christ, being made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, that in my opinion most people focus on the unmerited part rather than the favor part. And grace literally is the favor of God. Now, what does that mean? There's a lot of different ways that could be applied. Well, the favor of God is everything that God has done for you, and that's all been through Jesus. God sent Jesus because he loved you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's the favor of God. It was the favor of God that caused Jesus to come to the earth. It's the favor of God that caused Jesus to fulfill the plan of redemption. It's the favor of God that caused Jesus to finish the work of God and now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven and everything that belongs to us because of his redemptive plan is because of the favor of God. So we can define favor or the, we can define grace in a different way too. Grace is the finished work of Jesus. I like that definition because it focuses on what belongs to us rather than just God's attitude toward us. But both are accurate and both are true, and and maybe in different situations, they both are, are necessary. But because so much of the church world doesn't know who they are in Christ, that part seems to me to be the more important part. But the Bible talks about grace in a variety of ways and a variety of applications too. For example... There are things that Jesus bore for you on the cross. Specifically, you were saved from sin, you were saved from sickness, and you were saved from poverty. Specifically. That's what salvation means. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That means deliver from sin, deliver from sickness, deliver from poverty. The church world narrows that down into thinking that's just talking about sins, but it's not. Jesus didn't pay one price for sin and a different price for sickness and a different price for poverty. It's all his blood. His blood was shed equally for all of those things because all of those things were the result of spiritual death that held man bound. So to be free, he whom the Son says free is free indeed. To be free, you've got to be free from everything the devil brought upon the earth when man sinned. Are you with me? So the finished work of Jesus means you have been delivered from sin, sickness, and poverty because Jesus bore those things for you. But there are other things that we encounter in life that Jesus didn't bear for you. Jesus did not bear persecution for you. He said to his disciples, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. Now, Paul is praying for deliverance from persecution like deliverance from sickness. He's praying, Lord, let this thing be taken from me. Get rid of this demonic assignment. Can I ask you a question? How is God going to get rid of the messenger of Satan? How would Jesus answer Paul's prayer? And I'm I'm saying this specifically because we pray the same stuff. Lord, take away this problem. How? He's not the author of the problem. Paul is praying, Lord, take away something you didn't give me. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you. In other words, he's saying, I didn't bear that for you. But there's an answer. There's still victory. What is there? What is the source of victory for the things that we encounter on this earth that Jesus has not yet borne for us? Grace. It's still the favor of God. It's still the finished work of Jesus because of making us one with Christ, one with God in him. But what is that grace for? It's for strength. Paul talked about the grace of God given unto him as a minister. What's he saying? He's saying, I have the strength of God to carry out the work that he's given me to do. Now, folks, whatever it is you're gifted at, you have a grace of God to do that. I look at some people and what they do in in life, and I think there's no way I could do that. I don't have the skill to do that. But they do, and they love what they're doing. Some people work with numbers. I would go crazy working with numbers. But they've got a grace for that. That's what they do. They love it. They'd go crazy having to work with people. So there's a grace. There's a strength. There's a supernatural ability that goes along with the gifts that God has placed within us. That enable us to fulfill his plan for our lives, whatever that plan is that 's why in, Philippi, in um, Hebrews chapter four, verse sixteen, Paul said this. He said, "Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What does it mean finding grace to help in time of need well if it's something if you 're facing something that Jesus bore for you, then the grace for, that helps you in your time of need is The answer, if you're if you're uh, up against sickness, then the answer is the finished work of Jesus concerning healing. If it's poverty, then it's the answer is the finished work of Jesus concerning prosperity. But what if it's not something that Jesus bore for you? Then it's strength. It's strength. So where Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, he's saying, my strength will get you through. Because you're going to endure persecution here on the earth. How would God take that away? There's only one way for you to escape any more trouble with the devil here on the earth. And that's what Paul's praying. He's praying three times, Lord, let me not have this trouble anymore. There's only one answer. There's only one way for that to happen. And that is for you to die. Because as long as you're here on the earth, you're going to have the trouble that the devil brings on the earth. Do you understand that? Therefore, your options are to die and never have any more trouble with the devil or learn to count it all joy when the devil stirs up trouble. If you're going to walk in victory. Certainly it's victory to go home, although going home early is not the best way. So if you're going to experience victory here, you're going to have to learn to count it all joy. So what does Paul come away with? Notice the last part of verse 9. Jesus says to me, my grace is sufficient for thee. In other words, in this case, it means strength. My strength is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Clearly, he's talking about strength. He's talking about strength as being the equivalent or the equal of the grace of God in this situation. It's never applied to the physical body. He's saying, I'll give you spiritual strength to overcome. Actually, he's not saying I will. He's saying I already have. So what does Paul conclude? What's Paul's takeaway from this situation? Last part of verse 9. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory, another word for glory is rejoice in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. In other words, he's saying, now I get it. My job is to count it all joy so that the power of God can be seen. He's saying exactly the same thing James says in James 1. Count it all joy that when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfect work that you may be perfect and entire. Another translation says that your victory may be fully restored. So Paul has come to the same understanding that James is writing to the church about. He says, I understand that I need to rejoice in these things that Jesus hasn't borne for me so that my victory can be complete. Therefore... Verse verse 10, I take pleasure, that means I rejoice, I count it all joy. I take pleasure in infirmities. The word infirmities means weakness, it does not mean sickness. It's sometimes used in context with sickness, but that's always determined by the context, not by the word. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, weaknesses, in reproaches, in necessities in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. Where is sickness in that list? It's not there. Unless you redefine the word infirmities, it's not there. And you'll notice that every one of those situations is something that the strength of God is applied to your spirit to overcome. Distresses, persecutions, infirmities, reproaches. Every one of those has a spiritual source or a spiritual solution, not a physical one. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. So let's back up and look at the big picture here. What was Paul's answer? To the problems that he faced the problems, being persecutions. And every time Paul went into a city and was persecuted, these things added up time after time after time. I'm sure Paul did not realize the first time the persecution came against him that he had a thorn in the flesh. The messenger of Satan sent to buffet him. That was a uh, cumulative process over a while, over a period of time, Paul is going to realize, you know, this happens to me everywhere I go. He doesn't have some other missionary to talk to and say, hey, what was it like when you went out? He's the first one that goes out. There's no missionary alliance where he can get together for the yearly convention and they can compare notes. He's blazing the trail here, folks. He doesn't know what to expect. And when this happens time after time, city after city, town after town, over a period of time, he has to come to realize, man, this isn't just the people. This is something the devil's doing everywhere I go to stir people up. Man, I'm getting tired of this. I wonder what that would make you think when you went into a new city. Most people I know would have quit the ministry, first of all. But the ones that stayed in the ministry would have snuck into town instead of letting people know they were there. That'd make you kind of punchy, wouldn't it? You go into a new town, somebody says, hey, you're Paul. Oh, he'd have a lot of opportunities to worry, wouldn't he? Have a lot of things to worry about if he's going to take those opportunities. What are they going to do to me in this next town? The Lord speaks to him, tells him, go back to a place. And he thinks, oh, no, they beat me there the first time. What are they going to do this time? He's got plenty of opportunities to worry, folks. We all do. You're going to have some marvelous opportunities to worry. The devil will see to that. The question is, what are you going to do and how are you going to handle it? So over a period of time, Paul comes to a place where he says, Lord, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of this. This is the work of the devil. I understand now that this is the devil. Same thing happens to me in every town I go. It's not one person following me from place to place. Uh, folks, there were certain people that that stood against Paul. For example, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm. The Lord reward him according to his works. That's somebody that has stirred up trouble against Paul on a continuous basis. But he didn't follow him from town to town. He was instrumental in the, thing, the things that happened in Ephesus. Timothy was the pastor at the church at Ephesus. That's why he told Timothy about it. Another fellow named Hymenaeus. Paul said something about the same thing. The Lord will reward him according to his works too. That's how Paul dealt with the people that had set themselves against him. This, on the other hand, is the work of the devil going through different people, operating, being influenced by the, uh, the devil, influencing his own children in different cities wherever Paul would go. And that's what he prays. Lord, let this thing be taken from me. Three times he prays, let this thing be taken from me. Now, I don't believe that the Lord answered in my grace is sufficient for you all three times. I believe he he continues to pray the first two times he prays this thing. And we don't know if this is three times in a row, if it's three times over a period of time, maybe a a matter of a few years. Who knows? But when Paul prays this, the first two times, Jesus doesn't answer him anything. Jesus won't answer something that's prayed unscripturally. Paul is praying an unscriptural prayer. He's praying a prayer that God can't answer. Just like you pray the prayer that God can't answer when you say, Lord, take this devil problem away from me. How is he going to do that? He can't do anything about the devil. He does things on the victory side. He provides you victory. Do you understand the difference? Finally, the third time, the Lord tries to get Paul to the information and he says, look, here's the only way to handle this. You're asking me to take away the devil's uh, uh, agent. I don't control the devil's agent. And when I'm talking about the devil's agent, I'm talking about a demonic spirit. This is not the, just the death of a human being. If it was one person that was causing Paul the trouble and that one person fell dead, then that would be the end of Paul's trouble. But that's not the case. The devil is stirring up trouble because there's, a, there's a, a demonic assignment against Paul, and that's what Paul has identified Again, I believe it's over a period of time in a number of different places that he came to that realization. Finally, the third time, the Lord says, look, the answer is in my strength. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. In other words, everywhere the devil stirs up trouble, I'll make you able to overcome it. And that's Paul's takeaway. Oh, okay, all right, I get that now. So I'm going to rejoice, count it all joy when these situations arise, knowing that the power of God will show itself strong. Can you see that? Bottom line, bottom line in the whole thing, Paul changed his thinking. Paul learned to think carefree. Are you with me? Bottom line. Paul changed his thinking. That's why Romans 12 is so important. Look with me to Romans chapter 12 and we'll close with that. Romans chapter 12 tells us here's how the grace of God works. Let me say that again, because some of you weren't listening until I made that statement. Here's how the grace of God works. Now, what do you mean by grace of God, Pastor Mike? Grace of God can mean the finished work of Jesus, but that won't benefit you unless you think in line with what Jesus has done. It can mean the strength of God in the middle of a hard place, but that won't work unless you think in line with what the Bible says is yours. Either way, it comes down to your thought life. Because your actions are going to be governed by your thoughts. Romans 12, verse 1. Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. Notice God don't, doesn't do that for you. You present your bodies. Please notice that the grace of God, meaning the finished work of Jesus, did not bear your, the, uh, the responsibility that you have towards your bodies for you. That means what you do with your body has not been born by Jesus. That's your responsibility. Now, you, the strength of God, my grace is sufficient for you in that too. According to what the Bible says, the grace of God, the strength of God is sufficient for you to help you to do it, but it's still your responsibility. Folks, that's part of the problem with what people are doing with, with this uh, uh, some of the teaching on grace today. They're acting like I don't have any responsibility toward my body. Well, there's no grace teaching that's going to overcome Romans chapter 12, verse 1. You still have a responsibility. And if you're going to experience God's best, you're going to have to apply to yourself to acting on the word of God, to doing what the Bible says. It's just the way it is. Think what you want to, but you're not going to change the Bible through your thinking. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. Most translations, 23 out of 26. Say spiritual worship instead of reasonable service. You want to worship God in spirit, present your body a living sacrifice. The folks, all the singing and all the worship services in the world won't take the place of this. Thank you for your enthusiastic response. It's true. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or spiritual worship. And be not conformed to this world. But be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Please notice that says renewing the mind, not removing the mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove, the word prove means to determine by experience, that you may determine by experience what is the good and good acceptable and perfect will of God. How did Paul experience the perfect will of God concerning the attacks of the devil against him, the persecution against him? He renewed his mind to the strength of God available. He didn't have to do that in Acts chapter 16. He knew that it was the will of God to get them out of there. He knew that God had supernaturally sent him there to preach the gospel. You can't do that from prison. He knew that God wanted him out of there, so he simply praised God, get us out of here Thanks, God, for the answer. That's the prayer of faith. And there was an earthquake that set everybody free. But where it came to the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, he had to change his attitude. He had to renew his mind to the truth. It took further information for him so they knew what to think instead of the way that he was thinking. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your Mind, The renewing of your mind, the word renewing means reversal by repetition. Reversal by repetition. That's what the Greek word means. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of the mind, the reversing of your thoughts through repetition. That means you're going to have to train yourself to think the right things over and over and over and over and over again. Until it becomes second nature to you, just like you learn the multiplication tables or whatever else. For I say, verse 3, for I say through the grace given unto me. Now here he's not talking about what Jesus bore for him. He's talking about the strength of God that enables him to stand in his office. For I say, through the grace of God given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think, the word of himself, the words of himself are in italics, that means the translators added it, they're right, we're not supposed to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but he's not just talking about what we think about ourselves. For I say, through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think more highly then he ought to think, but to think soberly, not moved by emotions. Here he's talking about your thoughts independent from your emotions. But to think soberly, according as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. What's he saying? He's saying it's going to take faith for you to think the right things continually. It's going to take faith. It's going to take you accepting the word of God in spite of your feelings, in spite of what it looks like, in spite of how you feel. It's going to take faith to accept the Word of God to be true, to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, humble yourselves to the Word, it's going to take faith for you to say, yeah, the Bible says I'm righteous, so I'm righteous. It's going to take faith for you to renew your mind, to reverse the old thinking of unworthiness to the new thinking of I'm righteous by the blood of Jesus, no matter how you feel. But when you get there, it will transform your life. We look at men that have done great exploits, men like Wigglesworth and John Lake and uh, any number of other people. Paul. We look at men that did great exploits for God and we think, wow, they were superhuman. They had something extra that the rest of us didn't have. Well, there's, a, there's an element of truth to that. Part of that's wrong, but part of that's true. They didn't have anything that you can't have, but what they may have that you didn't have is a renewed mind. And that's what made them look superhuman to the rest of us. In other words... Their renewing of the mind to the power of God or the ministry God had given them or whatever it was, the renewing of their mind to that reality caused their lives to be transformed so that the power of God was evident. Where most of the church just goes through life saying, well, I just don't know why it's this way for me. What am I going to do? Don't know why God's letting this happen. And all the time, the opportunity to renew their mind to the truth, renew their mind to the power of God, renew their mind to what belongs to them in Christ Jesus is available to every one of them. If you're going to live carefree, you're going to have to learn to think carefree. Living carefree comes down to three things. Thinking carefree, refusing to worry, and counting it joy. Those three things will cause you to be carefree no matter whatever else is going on around you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. We thank you for who you've made us in Christ Jesus. Father, we choose to accept your word to be true. We choose to renew our mind to the truth. No matter how we feel. No matter what others may say. We thank you, Father, that we are the righteousness of God in Christ. We thank you that the greater one lives in us. We thank you that we have an unction from the Holy One and we know all things. We thank you that greater is he that is in us and he that's in the world. We thank you that there's no test, no trial, no trouble that comes against us, but that which is common unto man and you've given us the power to overcome it. Thank you, Father, for the finished work of Jesus that set us free from sin, sickness, and poverty. And thank you, Father, for the strength of God that helps us to overcome everything that the devil brings against us. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen.